Hello, Krista. Good evening, Philip. Good to see you. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you, of course, a lot about the book and the and the subject of the book. But I actually would like to start with talking about you. I mean, what brought you into philosophy in the first place? Uh, I think I've just always been uh, obsessed by philosophical questions as 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 far back as I can think. Really, I think it's I think it's a sort of being irritated by things that don't seem to fit in. So you know, there's, okay. There's, there's a variety of things that philosophers worry about that you know don't seem to fit into our standard scientific theory of reality so you know free will is one of them you know how does free human choice fit into the deterministic or near deterministic world of physics or facts about value you know facts about good and bad right or wrong yeah. are these really yeah. facts how do they fit in and um in, it's not so much a, a love of mystery. In a way, it's a, an annoyance at mystery. I, I want everything to fit together and make sense. <laughs> okay. and, um, but I think consciousness is is in, is in a way the, the most troubling. And I always yeah. found to be the most troubling because it's the one thing, the one of these phenomena that it's, it's so hard to deny its existence. So with yeah. all these other things... Um, you can maybe, it's maybe an option to say it doesn't really exist. Maybe we're not really free in the way we think we are. Mm. Maybe yeah. there aren't really facts about value. But with consciousness, the idea that, you know, nobody's ever felt pain or nobody's ever seen mm -hmm. colour just seems um, intolerable. So um, so it's so hard to deny, and yet it's yeah. so hard to fit into our standard scientific picture. But, yeah, it's, it's that... It's that um, Desire to make everything make sense. I think. Was that an interest for you uh, back when you were a small child or a teenager or what? Actually, my, my parents tell me that when I was four, I asked, why are we here? <laughs> although, <laughs> okay. My theory is we, we just recently moved house at the time. So maybe I was just confused about the location. But no, I, I do remember I was raised Catholic and I have an early, early memory of um, asking the priest, what happened to Adam and Eve with the big when the Big Bang happened? So again, it was sort of you know trying to fit together mm. these different stories of the world. You know, the one you're hearing in from the Bible and that the, the scientific one had some exposure mm. to do. You know, how does it all fit together? So um, yeah, so if there's you know if there's if if there's no kind of deep mystery about how things fit together, I'm not so interested in the details. But when there seem to be two two kinds of story about reality where we take both to be true mm -hmm. but we can't see how they mesh mm. that's i think that's what really really intrigues me um yeah. i mean and, and another yeah. example actually another silly example watching superman and superman could uh could could lift a planet but then he struggled a bit lifting a van and uh <laughs> you know that doesn't make sense what's <laughs> no. li little things like that bob but i i, I love consistent yeah yeah columbo um I used to watch the the, the seventies yeah. detective remember, series with yeah. my grandmother, and you know you'd always have the story that everyone accepted, and then Columbo would be like, "Something's bothering me here. Something's you know something doesn't fit." And I think I've always had that. Uh, <laughs> that what, what, what 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 um, I mean, your parents' background are they in, into academia as well or? Um, 
my father was a school teacher. Actually, my father said um, he, he, he studied economics and always taught economics and, and, and business studies. And he regrets not doing history. I think he thought mm. economics would be more practical. And um, he... Oh, sorry. <laughs> and no um, he... Um, I think he thought, you know, he, he, that could have been his way more of pursuing the truth as he saw it in, mm -hmm. in, in, in search for understanding history. And um, yeah, I, I think, I think um, that, that, that yearning for truth, I think is, is something that yeah. rubbed off. On. Um, uh, and you were raised Catholic, you say, do you still consider yourself a Catholic? No, I, I mean, I talk about this, a little bit in the book. Yeah. I, um, so I, I, I refused to get confirmed when I was 14 and, um, left religion for a long time. Actually in, in my early thirties, I, I, I returned to religion. I get, I think a sort of yearning for the, for the things that I really appreciated from a religious upbringing, the community, mm -hmm. spiritual practice, mm -hmm. marking the rites of passage and the, the, the changing of the seasons you know, that, that connection to tradition. So um, I, I now describe myself as a practicing agnostic. So I, I, uh -huh. I, I, am a, I do go to church, which is incredibly unusual for someone my age in the UK, uh, the Church of England rather than Catholic Church, which uh -huh. I find is, is somewhat more liberal. But I mean, I, I don't know if Christianity is true. You know, it was, it was a long time ago. It's a bit hard to say. But I... I, I get value out of um, engaging with it as a possibility and in connecting to my tradition, to my mm -hmm. community um, and so on. So, so yeah, that's it's like, it's like a medi meditation some in some sense for you, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a, you know, entirely just about, about um, spiritual practice. I do, I suppose feel in some sense, a feeling, a, a hope that I'm connecting to something mm. greater that it's that it's hard to totally pin down. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I suppose. Oh, we're getting deep now. I suppose. I suppose <laughs> in some sense, it's important to me to live in hope that there's a, there's a purpose to existence, mm -hmm. uh, and to see what I'm doing as in some small way contributing to that greater purpose. Mm. So I, I don't think I would say. I know that there's a purpose to existence or even I think there's a high probability of that, but I, I don't think you have to have certainty or high probability to have faith in something, mm -hmm. you know, to take an analogy, if you have, suppose you have a friend who's very, very unwell and maybe that, that there's, there's not a good prognosis and maybe, um, maybe there's only 30% chance they're going to make it. You shouldn't believe they're going to get better, but it, it's perfectly okay to say, I have faith that you're going to get better. I'm mm. going to choose to orientate my life to that possibility. So I think it's that sort of faith-based attitude that I, I, I take to religion. Mm, I understand. Yeah, I really understand. Tell me, <clears throat> okay, and, and then you, as a teenager, did, did, when did you meet philosophy in the traditional sense for the first time? What philosophers influenced you first? Um, so I did. I did uh, a little, little bit of philosophy at high school. I didn't. I didn't do incredibly well at it, actually. Somehow, I. Um, I did. I mean, we did Plato and Descartes, and I think. I mean, I guess it's 
it's it's somewhat of a cliche to Plato and Descartes, but I think that those two figures have really stayed with me. And I think I think there's something they both got right. You know, Descartes' central conviction that the mind is better known than the body. You know, it's um, it's very easy to get ourselves into the thinking that, you know, maybe the world around me is an illusion. Maybe I'm in the matrix. Maybe I don't even have a body or a brain. Maybe this is all part of an illusion put into me by evil computers or an evil demon, as Descartes mm-hmm. put it. But the idea that I'm not really conscious, I'm not really having an experience mm-hmm. of having a body and a brain and of talking to you right now, that just seems much harder to make sense of. So I think that's something Descartes got got totally right. And um, after that, when he tried to prove the existence of God and so on, it, it went a bit a bit awry. But um, but also, um, you know, Plato's idea that as well as as well as the physical world, there is an eternal, timeless world of logical and mathematical, mm. perhaps moral truth. Um, I, I think there's that there's there's something right there too, and I think I think maybe we're going through a period of history where we're so blown away by the incredible success of natural science and the incredible technology it's produced that we become inclined to think that that the story we get from natural science is the complete story of reality. Mm-hmm. But I, I, in my view, you know, and this connects to the book. The reason um, natural science has gone so well is is because for the last 500 years, it's focused on a, on a quite narrow, specific task, um, namely accounting for the data of public observation and experiments. And I think there are there are things we know in other ways. In the case of Plato, the um, through reason, our access to uh, mathematical realities through reason and um, the logical structure of reality that's not not observable with the se- with the senses, not something you get at through looking looking down a microscope. But I think it's 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 nonetheless part of reality and a part of reality that's accessible to us in in a quite different way. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm, and, and there are obviously uh, there are thought experiments. Uh, I'm thinking of Galileo's thought experiment where he proves that Aristotle's idea that <clears throat> a stone and a feather will not fall with the same speed. He actually shows that that's not. In, that's not consistent, even without trying it. He proves it by a logical paradox, you know. So, so he, you can yeah. get knowledge about reality without even observing reality. So, in that sense, there is some kind of mm, non-material truth there that you can access. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure in that case it's it's a non-material truth, but it's certainly a truth accessible through reason. Yeah, and, yeah okay. And yeah. Part of why I make such a big deal of talking about that in in the book is to mm. just I think people don't really know what philosophy is and and certainly have very little sense that it can help us find out the nature of reality. I think people think it's the job of science to find out the nature of reality and maybe maybe the job of philosophers to sort of make us feel a bit better about <laughs> the world that science the cold world science has resigned us to or something. But um but I think Galileo is thought of rightly as a great experimental philosopher, sorry, a great experimental scientist. Well, they were, they were called natural philosophers in those days, but he was also a great philosopher in our modern sense. And as 
part of that was shaping the philosophical foundations of the scientific revolution, yeah. the, the philosophy that lies behind science. But part of it, as you alluded to, was he uh, refuted a central plank of Aristotle's physics, mm-hmm. which people have believed for thousands of years, yeah. namely, namely the common sense idea that heavy objects fall faster than lighter objects. Galileo refuted that, not with an experiment, exactly. but with a pure philosophical argument. Mm. He showed that there was a, an implicit contradiction in, yeah. in that plank of Aristotelian physics. Um, and, and so he's perhaps one of the few examples of a philosophical argument that's almost, it's just completely universally accepted, completely persuaded everyone. So yeah, people have, there's this myth that he showed it by dropping, um, feather and a, a lead ball from the leaning tower of Pisa. I think historians think he probably didn't do that. No. And in, in any case, uh, resistance might have Yeah, it wouldn't well. have worked. Oh, yeah. But you might, you might have seen this, uh, this YouTube video where they actually do that in a vacuum chamber. <laughs> they drop a feather and a stone and it actually falls at the same speed. It's fantastic to see. It's on YouTube. Well, they did it. I'm not sure I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to check you it should, out. But you I, should check I, it out. They did it. They did it on one of the um, one of the trips to the moon. I can't remember which one now. Uh-huh. They because uh, it's in a vacuum. Okay. Uh, okay. So yeah, 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 yeah. 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 It's on YouTube. You should check it out because it really looks yeah. weird because you, because you're so unused to it. But uh, tell me, I mean, um, you, do you also consider? Um, you, you said that uh, objective truth, for example, the mathematician Gödel was a Platonist when it came to mathematics, for example, you know, the incompleteness theorem and so on. Are you a Platonist in that sense? You believe in objective truths in that sense? In, in, in some sense. Yeah. I mean, I go a little bit back and forth on this. I guess I don't want to get too technical. I suppose um, sometimes I think Platonists, tend to model the mathematical reality as though it were like physical reality, as though it were things, you know, Mm -hmm. there are the numbers, the abstract objects. Whereas perhaps I'm more inclined to think as philosophers like Thomas Nagel, who I'm a huge fan of, Derek Parfit, the great Derek Parfit who died recently. They they tend to think maybe these are just, maybe that's modeling it too much on physical reality. Maybe they are just brute mathematical and indeed moral truths, I would say. So I certainly think there are, in some sense, objective truths of mathematics. I don't think they're explicable in terms of convention or human meaning or something. There are eternal, timeless truths. Mm -hmm. But whether we have to understand that, as Platonists often do, as numbers, abstract objects existing, I'm not sure that's quite the the right way to put it. But, I mean, it's a good connection to Gödel because... There was a big project at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century with um, Bertrand Russell and Feger and um, Alfred North Whitehead to try and reduce mathematics to logic. Yeah, David Hilbert. But I think think, um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem in in a way puts pay to that because it shows that uh, for any finite set of axioms generated by an algorithm, there are there are some mathematical truths that we can know to be true through reason, yeah. but which which can't be proved within the system. Yeah, yeah. So I think that really puts pay to the idea that we can just reduce ma- mathematics to logic. So I think we do have to accept there are these 
timeless, eternal mathematical truths that are in some sense part of reality. And then it's a deep mystery. How, how do we how do we access them through reason? Yeah. And yeah, I think as a society, we're, we're not, I think we're so obsessed with the wonderful things we know about through the scientific method, but we need to think about these other things we know in different ways and how do we know about them? And, and that all needs to inform our theory of reality. So, I mean, what I'm most passionate about is we need to go back to this noble project of, of trying to systematize all of the knowledge we have into mm. a single unified theory of reality. Mm. Um, I mean, at least uh, Gödel showed that truth is not equivalent to probability. I mean, that's not the same thing, and and that's 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 a quite deep uh, thing, I think, at least. Yeah. So, how do you think he showed that? Was that? I mean, the... pr tr truth is not the same thing as probability in the sense that there are truths that are not provable within a certain. Oh, system. I see. Yeah, pro right. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's not, it's not reducible to provability. No, no. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe there are some more nuanced ways philosophers of mathematics have, uh, have tried to spin this. Mm -hmm. But yes, at least the, mo the more straightforward reductions in, in terms of provability. <clears throat> what, I mean, what, what, what do you think about the sort of the quantum physics uh, work that is going on, that you have theories that are extremely accurate when it comes to predict experiments, but there is no intuitive sort of um, reality that fits with that. How do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the way you put it is, is quite right that there is a piece of mathematics here that is, in terms of prediction, the best science we have, yeah. you know, just all of our technology is dependent on it. Very little of our technology is dependent on general relativity, our mm -hmm. best theory of big things, but quantum mechanics um a lot is and and um the problem is no one knows what on earth is going on in reality no. to make those equations work and these different interpretations and i think i think many scientists get frustrated with that if you you know think if you can't answer with an experiment it's it's it doesn't make sense or it's it's ill-defined or something and mm. this is the so-called shut up and calculate approach yeah. just just get on with the experiments and you know that's all that matters but i think and you know i mean the physicist sean carroll who i've had a lot a lot of engagement with um has talked about you know how it, it was such a taboo for so many years yeah. to even want to take on this question that but it's changing now all, isn't it it's changing now Yeah, but I, I think I think you still can't really get a job, as I understand it. That I think people have, you have to get a job first, and then yeah, yeah, and then a, a sort of sideline. But in a way, it's similar to the consciousness issue because I think what we can what we can access empirically with consciousness is which kinds of you know. Some people often say, "Well, isn't this just a neuroscience question?" You know, explaining consciousness. Well, what we can do with neuroscience is we can work out which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of conscious experience, you know, this kind of pattern of neural firings goes along with hunger or whatever. And that's important data, but th none of that addresses the question, why, why um, do various kinds of brain activity go along with various kinds of experience? Yeah. And that is not a question we can answer with an experiment. And again, some people want to say, Oh, I, I can understand the frustration if you can't answer it with an experiment, but I think we've just got to, re to realize that 
there, there are not all of our questions can be answered with experiments, and that's why we we have to turn to the philosophical method. Yeah, imperfect, imperfect as it is. But yeah, I mean, I, I I'm very interested in quantum mechanics because. I mean, I don't want to get too technical again, but there's set. I, I, well, I have a paper coming out in a volume with Oxford University Press on quantum mechanics and consciousness. And my 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 issue there is, I think, certain views the f- theoretical physicists defend, like Sean Carroll, for example, where you have very esoteric physics at the fundamental level. Um, in a high dimensional space where at the bottom level of reality, there's no space, there's no time, there's no particles, there's just a vector in high dimensional space. Mm-hmm. That might work very well for the mathematics and the physics. I'm not sure you could get human consciousness out of that kind of story. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 and that's, I, I, going back to Descartes, I think that's the one thing we know for certain our own experience. So I would like to see, again, I think it's the neglect of philosophy that I would like to see the reality of consciousness acting as some kind of constraint on these fundamental theories of reality. And perhaps that might help us make progress. Oh, Oops. Perhaps that might help us make progress on some of these difficult questions in the foundations of quantum mechanics. Yeah. Uh, I think your mic, uh, can you get the mic back? Because I lost your sound a little bit uh, there. How is it now? Now it's better. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah. But did you did I finish the sentence again? Or yeah, you... I heard it, but it was just a little bit weaker. But I heard it, so it's fine. Um, uh, but let me ask you. I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on quantum mechanics, but as I understand it, um, the phys- physicists today tend to to leave the idea that consciousness actually affects the experiment. I mean it. You know, that was popular for a while, but it seems that it's not really what they say today. Do you agree with me? Definitely, as that's as a sociological observation, that is correct. Um, you know, I think for, for a long time, people just, it's always been there, that interpretation, and yeah. people just sort of ridiculed it or whatever. Recently, the philosopher David Chalmers and his co-writer, the yeah. philosopher of physics, Kelvin McQueen, have written a, a detailed spelling out an evaluation of that interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh-huh. that consciousness collapses the wave function. Now they don't necessarily accept it, but they think, you know, what is ev- everything should be appropriate subject matter, as long as you deal with it with seriousness, with yeah. rigor, with appropriate knowledge. And that's what they've done. And um, people can look at that on David Chalmers website. It's, it's very interesting. Um, So to my, to my own mind, I'm not so sympathetic to it. I mean, I, I can understand. I mean, I, th- I think well, one thing Chalmers says is part of the reason people have been opposed to it is because it seems to involve dualism, the idea that consciousness is non-physical. Uh, and then the idea is that it's when physical systems get entangled with non-physical consciousness yeah. that the wave function Uh, collapses me think of it in terms of schrodinger's cat you yeah. know when they when the mm. box is shut the cat is alive and dead the box opens our non-physical consciousness gets entangled with the system and the cat becomes either definitely alive or definitely dead um and i mean you so people oppose that maybe oh it seems to involve dualism isn't isn't dualism problematic and people don't like it but actually as Chalmers points out The reason people have tended to reject dualism 
is because it's hard to see how a non-physical consciousness could play a role in in the physical world, how it could affect the brain. But on this interpretation of quantum mechanics, consciousness does play a role at the fundamental level. So so the, the reasons to sort of cancel each other out um but 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 i'm not myself so sympathetic to it because um um, i mean i think these things need to be explored and so on but well i mean i've got certain sort of scientific reasons for not being that sympathetic to it but also my view is panpsychism which is that consciousness in some sense pervades the physical universe that's not really doesn't fit well with this theory because on these interpretations of quantum mechanics we need um, we need there to be some context where there's no collapse of the wave function, i.e. the cat is both alive and dead, and some context where there is a collapse of the wave function, i.e. the cat is definitely alive or definitely dead. Mm. But if consciousness is supposed to be collapsing the wave function and consciousness is everywhere, then you'd always have a collapsed wave function. Yeah. So it, it fits better with the idea that consciousness is non-physical dualism yeah. rather than panpsychist view. I prefer. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Okay, let, let let's talk about the, your book specifically now. I mean, first of all, it's called Galileo's error. Uh, could you just start by explaining what is the error Galileo did? What's the error? <laughs> yeah. So I guess. Um, I guess I, I blame Galileo for <laughs> a lot of the troubles we're wrestling with now. Although, you know, it's a somewhat provocative title. I'm a, actually a huge fan of Galileo. And I think what, what he did was probably the right way to do it in the long run. But really, essentially, essentially what the, the, the so-called error was, was designing physical science in such a way that consciousness was inevitably and essentially outside of the domain of science. Mm. So um, so a key moment in the scientific revolution is Galileo's declaration that <clears throat> from now on, mathematics was to be the language of physical science. Physical science was to deal with this purely quantitative vocabulary. Um, mm. But Galileo appreciated, I think, that you can't capture the qualities of conscious experience in those terms. If you think about, you know, the the redness of a red experience um, or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint, you can't capture these qualities of experience Mm. in the purely quantitative language of mathematics. An equation can't capture that deep red you experience as you watch the setting sun, for example. Um, in fact, before Galileo, people thought these qualities were out there in the physical world. So kind of colors are on the surfaces of objects yeah. and smells are floating through the air. Um, but this was a problem for Galileo because he wants he wants to completely describe the physical world in mathematics. So he said, look, if we want a mathematical science, we need to take the qualities mm. out of the domain of science So Galileo said, right, all those qualities that seem to be out there in the physical world, actually, they're just in the the consciousness of the observer. So you're looking at this cup, the blueness isn't really out there on the surface of the cup. It's in the my consciousness as I observe it or the spiciness of the curry isn't really inside the curry. It's in my consciousness as I consume it. Mm. Um, and And the consciousness is taken to be outside of the domain of science. 
So Galileo strips the world of its physical qualities. And after we've done that, the, everything can be described in, in the purely quantitative language of mathematical geometry. All that's left are things like size, shape, location, motion, things we can capture in mathematics. So this is the start of mathematical physics. Um, but what we've forgotten is this whole project was premised on it being a partial description of reality, one that set consciousness outside of its domain of inquiry. So I think this is vital because I think people, there is this well-understood challenge of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, but I think people still say, oh, you know, it's, it, it's going to be done eventually. Look at the great success of physical science, explaining so much the wonderful technology. Of course, it'll one day explain consciousness, but... I think, in my view, the reason physical science has been so successful is precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness. So I think if Galileo time traveled to the present day and heard about this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to ignore consciousness, mm. to deal with the quantitative not the qualitative. So I think if, if we want to deal with consciousness, if we want to bring it into our scientific story of the universe, yeah. um, if we want to bring it into our scientific story of the universe, we need to rethink the picture of science that Galileo bequeathed mm. us. Yeah, the mic needs to come back. I, I heard you, but not as good oh, as no. before. <laughs> Sorry about It's that. No problem. Oh, uh, it's come out here, actually. That's the problem. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, that's that's much better. Uh, but I heard I heard you all the all the way. So okay, so I, I understand what you mean. I, it reminds me of this thought experiment as you, that you, of course, have heard about Mary, who lives in a black and white room, and she knows everything, every physics and chemistry and biology of colors, but she's never seen a color. And then she walks out of this room and sees a red rose. And the question is, does she? does she experience something new? Does she gain new knowledge? Because she knows everything about colors in, in a physical terms. And it seems like you would answer, yes, she's gaining new knowledge, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so I think this is a contemporary Qualia. way, yeah, making more vivid that instinct that Galileo had 500 years ago, I think, that... Um, That, as I say, you, 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 the, these qualities we apprehend in our, if you just, I would just invite viewers or listeners to just attend to their experience right now, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the tastes. Um, you can't capture those qualities in the purely quantitative language of, of say, neuroscience. Um, and, you know, and one way of pressing that is to say, um, a colorblind neuroscientist, no matter how much neuroscience they learn, is never going to know what it's like to see red, is never going to fully understand mm. the qualitative character of a red experience. And I talk about the color scientist Nut Norby in the book, who, mm -hmm. who is an expert in color science, uh, but lacks cones in his eyes, so he can't see black and white and So he can only see, sorry, black and white and certain yeah. shades of gray. And he talks about how he um, he can't fully uh, understand 
the qualities of color experience. So the Mary thought experiment is a way of making this vivid that, so the, the, the fictional character by Frank Jackson is raised in this black and white room. Mm. She learns everything that goes on in the brain when people see colors, you know, which, what changes in the retina of the eye depending on the wavelength of light, the changes that makes in the neural firings, how that leads to behavior. She knows all that, but she's only ever seen black and white and shades of gray. Bit of a far-fetched thought experiment. (laughs) But then one day she's liberated from her room and she sees, let's say, a red rose on the doorstep on the threshold of her prison, her black and white prison, And she sees red for the first time. And the thought is that at this point, she would learn something new. Mm. She would gain some new information, namely that what it's like to see red, the character of a red experience. Mm. So there's something, some information that she couldn't get from the neuroscience that goes beyond what the neuroscience could ever teach us. Mm. And I think this shows us that there's, there's, there's some information about the nature of consciousness that can never be captured in, in the terms of physical science that will always go beyond that. Okay, but, okay, the, 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 the idea of panpsychism now, I mean, um, first of all, before we discuss it more deeply, it seems to be trending. I mean, it seems like more and more people talk about panpsychism and it's sort of being brought into the serious philosophical discussions, maybe from a little bit more new age culture. Uh, Or or would you object to that description? Um, No, I think it has. It it very much has, yeah, both in... I think there are a couple of reasons for this in mm. um, in academic philosophy, as I talk about in my book. There's a rediscovery of a certain approach to consciousness from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington that was has recently been, in in some sense, rediscovered and people taking very seriously as a, as an ex, as an exciting way forward on consciousness. So there's been a huge amount of publications on that in serious academic philosophy, a view that was just kind of laughed at for so long. Also with the the integrated information theory in neuroscience, one of the leading contenders that seems to have somewhat panpsychist implications. So, yeah, I mean, again, I think we, we shouldn't be a scared. We shouldn't be scared to explore any view so long as we do it with seriousness and rigor. You know, I think sometimes, Terms like new age, in a way, sort of function a little bit like racist terms in that, you know, a racist term will sort of pick out a group of people, but will also imply certain negative features. I think, you know, when one says the term new age, you know, that it will it will talk about a certain range of views, but will imply sort of fluffy thinking. And, you know, look, a lot of talk of panpsychism is fluffy thinking, but a lot of talk of materialism or any form of consciousness is, is fluffy thinking. So I think, you know, um, yeah, we just got to look at the evidence and the arguments mm. and, and, but yeah, it, it certainly has come a, a lot more into the mainstream yeah. and it's, it's a view that's on the table in a way, in a way it wasn't before. I mean, the, the big UK philosophy conference, we, the, 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 Brit- the annual biggest philosophy conference 
Um, just last year, I had a session, a plenary session on panpsychism for the first time in its history. Just one example, mm. and um, yeah, it's still you know it's still a minority view, but it's um, it's a view that's taken seriously. In a way, it never it wasn't before. Um, Bertrand Russell, uh, I, you know, is is often um, uh, connected to a lot of other. I mean, a very clear atheist, for example, uh, very much opposed to any supernatural uh, views of the world. Uh, he wrote this book, Why I'm Not a Christian, and so on. Uh, in what sense, can, can you describe his take on pansochism? How did he and Eddington formulate this back in the 20s? So I think that the way I like to explain it is that I think Russell was thinking very seriously about what it, what it means that physics is purely mathematical. And again, this is something we kind of take for granted these days. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't always thus. Again, this goes back to Galileo. It was a radical thing at the time in 1623 when Galileo said, right, it's going to be purely mathematical. But, but, but you know, and, and as a scientist, you might just, you know, you're just interested in the predictions and mathematical modeling works very well. But as a philosopher, what does this tell us about the nature of reality when uh, that fundamental physics is purely mathematical? And I think there are a couple of ways you can go with this. One way is you you follow the, go, go for example, the, the physicist Max Tegmark, who says, well, maybe this means that at the fundamental level, the universe is sort of made up of mathematics. Yeah. Maybe it's made up of numbers and functions and vectors. Uh So that's that's one option. It feels a bit weird. It feels a bit too insubstantial in a way, but that's maybe an option. Quite, But the way Russell, yeah. quite controversial. I mean, Max is 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 a good friend of mine. He's Swedish, you know. So, oh yeah, of course, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. yeah. But he, I mean, he's quite controversial when it comes to this mathematical interpretation. It is, you know, it is. People say that, and physicists say that to me. Um, although, you know. Physics is purely mathematical. So I, in a way, I kind of, I don't know what the alternative is. If you're okay. thinking physics tells us the complete story of the fundamental nature of reality and physics is pure mathematics, then I kind of don't see what the alternative is to Max Tegmark's view. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> maybe, but, but well, but the alternative that Russell took is to say, well, maybe there's something that underlies those mathematical structures that are identified by physics. Maybe there's something that those mathematical structures are the mathematical structures of. So, um, you know, I like this line from the final page of Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time, where he said that the, the, even a final theory of physics will be just equations. It won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations mm. and make the universe for them to describe. So, so Russell thought, look, there's, there's something mathematics Physics, mathematical physics doesn't really tell us the stuff of the world. It's very useful for modeling what stuff does, but it's not really telling us what stuff is. So, so this leaves a kind of a kind of hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. And then Russell's genius was to think, well, we're looking for a place for consciousness. We've got a hole. Maybe we can put consciousness in the hole. So, so I So on a panpsychist interpretation of this, the thought is at the fundamental level of reality, what we have are incredibly simple conscious entities 
with very, very simple experiences and hence very, very simple behavior as, as, a, as an upshot of that. And because their behavior is so simple, they behave in very simple, predictable patterns. Through their interactions, they realize certain mathematical structures. And then those mathematical structures are the mathematical structures identified by physics. So in this way, we sort of, we get physics emerging from a more fundamental story about very simple forms of consciousness. So it sort of, it turns the problem of consciousness on its head. Most people think, you know, we start with matter of the brain, ultimately understood in terms of physics. How, do, how does consciousness emerge from that? But the panpsychist turns it on its head, says, no, no, we start with very simple forms of experience. They interact and realize certain mathematical structures and physics emerges from that. Um, and strange as that might seem, I think that's just much easier to do. It makes a lot more sense than, than doing it the other way around. But we can only do that because physics is purely mathematical. Mm. So as long as you've got stuff, whatever it is, that can realize the mathematical structures, we've got physics. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah it definitely makes sense. But <clears throat> okay, but <clears throat> let me try to provoke you a little bit and, uh, and say uh, two questions. First of all, couldn't you say that panpsychism is just saying that we have this phenomena of consciousness that we don't understand it at all. We don't get it. So we just put it into the atom and say that it's a part of, you know, yeah. the character of the atom. So then we sort of get rid of this problem. <laughs> that's, my quest that's my first question. Uh, couldn't you say that? And this is my second question. Okay, let's imagine it is a part of the atom. It is a part of the material world. Does this theory of panpsychism have any explanatory power at all because we still have to explain why consciousness arises in the brain but not in a stone so right right <laughs> good okay both excellent questions and i and i like i i appreciate the challenge i mean so on the first question i mean one thing to say is that you know there's plenty of precedent in in science for non-reductive explanation. That is to say where we don't explain a phenomenon in terms of something else, where we, we take it as fundamental. So a good example is um, electromagnetism. When Maxwell came along in the 19th century with his theory of electro electromagnetism, he didn't explain electricity and magnetism in terms of the postulations, the mechanical postulations and laws that science already had. He postulated basic mm. electromagnetic properties and laws and then proceeded to explain on that basis. So similarly for the panpsychist, when the, mm. the final theory of consciousness comes along, you won't explain consciousness in terms of something else. We start off with consciousness in mm. very simple forms and proceed on that basis. And, um, you know, I just, so, you know, I, I guess I would, I would suggest it's a sort of, prejudice and materialists to think we have to do it the other way around. Um, you know, you've just got to explore different theoretical choices here. To my mind, you know, there are, there are three options, really. Either we can get consciousness out of physics, or we can get physics out of consciousness, or the dualist option, both the physical world and consciousness in the soul, perhaps, are both very distinct but fundamental things. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I just think that 
it's it's impossible to get what we've been trying for decades is to get consciousness out of matter to how to explain how 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 that can happen i th- i would argue we've got precisely nowhere you know we've made a lot of progress in lots of ways with mm-hmm. consciousness in the brain but on that central question that's known as the hard problem of consciousness i'd say we've got precisely nowhere and i think there are very good reasons why we've got nowhere this this issue of the purely quantitative language of physical science its inability to capture the qualities of experience that's not what physical science was designed for by galileo whereas there's another option turn it on its head we can get physics out of consciousness and that is just actually really straightforward so um okay so that i mean that's that's i guess uh, an attempt at an answer to the first question the second question yeah i mean you're quite right it's it's not the end of the story to just say panpsychism the end let's go home mm-hmm. it's rather a a framework mm. for a for a research program so i mean a rough analogy darwin's idea of natural selection mm. that that was a broad brushstrokes idea for how um complicated organisms might have emerged without intelligent design but of course it took you know a century to get to yeah. dna and um, and we're still going so so russell inspired panpsychism is is a general framework for how uh consciousness and the fits into the physical world and it it will take a long time to fill in the details and i mean what i'm quite excited about is we're moving on now you say pan, as you say panpsychism has become more talked about more accepted and it's starting to move on to not just justifying its existence but a proper research program you know mm. so, since writing galileo's error it was published a couple of years ago now in, in the uk and the us i have scientists contacting me and mm. you know disconnects with their research there was recently published with the journal of consciousness studies a special issue people might be interested in of um 19 essays in response to Galileo's error not just by philosophers but also by leading scientists mm. like Carlo Rovelli mm. uh, Sean Carroll Lee Smolan um Anil Seth Christoph Koch um you know wonderful. many of them critical as this should be yeah that's but wonderful some, some supportive and um and I reply to all the essays many of them most of them are online actually and linked to from my blog which which is linked to from my website philipgoffphilosophy.com if anyone wants to wants to look at some of them Very so good. and you know I, I would like in the near future we we just last weekend had a conference on panpsychism actually just with philosophers actually but we i think we would very much like to start to apply for funding to put together some kind of network i mean i have a neuroscientist actually from harvard coming to visit in in a couple of weeks and I'm going to have a chat with him. So um yeah, I you know I think it's it's a it's an ongoing research program and it's we have to explain how and in precisely what way um complicated forms of consciousness emerge from simpler forms of consciousness mm. at, the, at the level of fundamental physics and it's an it's an ongoing research program. What do you say I mean who who are your allies in this among well-known philosophers i mean daniel dennett would probably not agree with you right no, no. <laughs> but david chalmers would yeah uh, yeah yeah i mean chalmers yeah daniel dennett is the polar opposite you know <laughs> yes yes uh, um i mean he thinks 
Although actually, in a, in a sense... He doesn't believe consciousness very, exists at all. Well, <laughs> yeah, in a sense, there's something... Well, I, 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 I present a podcast, actually, Mind Chat, with, a, with someone with a kind of Dennett-type view okay. who doesn't believe in consciousness. So the, the gimmick is, I think consciousness is everywhere, and he thinks it's nowhere, Keith Frankish. But in a way, people like us are very close, and Dennett as well, because we both think that consciousness in the normal way philosophers think about it can't be explained in ordinary scientific terms. Mm. So, so my, one of the inference I draw from that is, well, we need to rethink science. We need to rethink this picture of science bequeathed to us by Galileo, whereas my friend and co-host Keith Frankish says, well, that means it doesn't exist. It's like magic or fairy mm. dust. So there's a, this is the position that's become known as illusionism. That, yeah. And Keith was, was, was also one of the, the contributors to this volume I just referred to. His paper was called Galileo's Real Error, which is sort of <laughs> thinking consciousness exists at all. Um, but um, what am I talking about? So, yeah, so, 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 so there, there is a commonality there. But in terms of people who are on my side, yeah, as you say, David Chalmers, I think he's more sympathetic to a dualist position, mm-hmm. perhaps with this quantum mechanics stuff, although he's you know, very agnostic on that. I think he said he's sort of 60% dualist, 40% panpsychist. <laughs> okay. he, he's worried about how the little conscious things make a big conscious thing. Um, I mean, the, yeah, there are a lot of great philosophers. It, well, this conference we just had last weekend, two, two people I talked about in my book, um, Luke Roloffs and Hedda Hassel-Merk, who's a Norwegian philosopher. Um, uh, Luke Roloffs is, a, is an English philosopher, but currently at New York University. Um, Angela Mendelevici is mm-hmm. um, an, a, another good philosopher. So uh, Itai Shani. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends. I suppose there's, there's a broader camp in the anti-physicalist camp, those mm-hmm. who think, you know, we can't account for consciousness in straightforward materialist terms. If you want the stats on this, actually, there's the Phil Papers survey, um, which is was a survey of Anglophone philosophers' opinions conducted recently of, you know, does God exist? Do we have free will? And so on. And 50% on consciousness, 50% of philosophers said they were materialists. Uh about 30% said they're anti-materialists and then 15, 20% undecided. And then of the anti-materialists, about two thirds are dualists and one third panpsychists. Wow. So, so panpsychists is, is, you know, the third position. Yeah. But, but that's the last time they did the survey, panpsychism wasn't on it. So it's, 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 it's very much on the table. In yeah, a way it, it is on the table. Uh, yeah, definitely. So yeah. So, so, so allies are sort of the anti-physicalist camp is, very significant minority. Uh, dualists are a smaller, but definitely, I don't think you could call it fringe anymore. No. What's Carlo Rovelli saying about it? I just read his book, Helgoland, which was really interesting, describing quantum physics as a sort of relational model uh, to reality. And, and uh, But I don't know his opinion on panpsychism at all. What, what, what is he saying? Yeah. So he, he he's not someone... On, on my side of the debate, exactly. I guess he's a more co- traditional materialist. You know, he, I mean, an absolutely fascinating thinker, as you say. Yeah. Uh, a joy to read. I've learned a lot from reading his books. Um, you know, traditional materialist in the sense that he thinks, you know, at the fundamental level of reality, it's just mm. what physical science tells us about. What his contribution to this volume was, though, that was saying that in a sense, 
relational quantum mechanics that you just referred to is in a could be seen in a sense as a kind of panpsychism that um that things don't have existence things aren't it's not 19th century physics where things are shut off in their own um little windowless cells uh things have their reality in relation to each other and you can think about it he thinks it maybe a little bit closer to our idea of mentality that in, in a sense he says things have perspectives they are for each other so i think he thinks this might help with some of the intuitions behind the hard problem of consciousness you know why, why do we think consciousness is so mysterious that it couldn't be explained in terms of the brain because because we're thinking in terms of 19th century physics and that seems so ill-fitting with mentality mm. but if in the in terms of relational quantum mechanics that if if things are for each other have perspectives in that sense maybe that helps a little bit a little bit make sense of how consciousness could be physical mm. absolutely and in a sense could be seen as a kind of panpsychism absolutely fascinating proposal i don't buy it for a second and <laughs> well i have sorry replies to all these papers and i just i mean look for me the thing i am most passionate about uh, more than panpsychism is just that we need to get to the stage where we 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 appreciate that conscious the reality of consciousness is a datum in its own right it, and it's not a datum of public observation and experiment you know so people think that the task of science is just accounting for public observation and mm-hmm. experiments but it if you religiously stuck to that you wouldn't deal with consciousness because consciousness is not a, a datum of public observation experiment you can't look in my brain and see my feelings and experiences mm. we know about consciousness in a very different way just through our immediate awareness of our feelings mm. and experiences mm. so this is something we need to we need to think how do we find out about reality we need to take into account the scientific data the data of observation experiments but also this other data the reality of conscious experience that we know about which is undeniable but which we know about in a very different way and I think people like Ravelli, Sean Carroll are just, yeah, they're they're, they're just um, not thinking in those terms mm, uh, mm. as as most people aren't. So, <clears throat> but yeah, what, so. what 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 would you say if someone would say to you that this idea, these panpsychist ideas, I mean, they are thousands of years old. You have them in Indian philosophy or in Zen traditions and so on, and. And it, it's nothing new, really, but we haven't had it in the Western philosophy just. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's only as recent as the 19th century, actually, that it was, it was big in, in Western philosophy, yeah. actually. I mean, yeah. I, I wrote the um, St- Stanford Encyclopedia entry on um, panpsychism. Stanford Encyclopedia is probably the most sort of respected yeah. um, online philosophy encyclopedia. Um, actually, I, the, the only section I didn't really write was I kind of rewrote it all. But the history section, I'm not too hot on history. I, I kind of mm. left that as it was. It's, it should. It's still. It's still unfortunately just Western philosophy. I think it really needs mm-hmm. to be updated to yeah. um, to the Eastern philosophy as well. But it, it's only as recent as the 19th century that idealism or, or panpsychism were really really big mainstream positions. I think it's just from the 1950s after the war, we start to get this materialist, maybe 
kind of anti-philosophical zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so I, I think we're going through a period of history where, as I say, you know, we're, we're so blown away by the success of physical science. Mm-hmm. You know, that has an effect on you that it's mm-hmm. incredible things we can do. And we tend to think that's everything. That's the full <laughs> story. Yeah. But I think, I think people are slowly starting to appreciate that you there are things we know about in other ways. You can't answer all questions with experiments. And so we're slowly mo- moving towards um, a, a more expansive conception of the scientific method. And yeah, I mean, maybe it's, it's going back to things that we, we took seriously before. Maybe mm. that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I suppose you just have to, although, I mean, connecting with, I mean, look, it, often when people think of panpsychism in, in, um, in history, you think of it as something mystical, something spiritual. And I always want to emphasize that contemporary panpsychism is not necessarily connected with anything spiritual or no. uh, people like David Chalmers, Luke Roloff. They're just trying to account for mundane human consciousness. Mm. And they think with good reason, we need to expand the scientific method a little bit to deal with that. Um, although having said that, you know, I think if, there was a bit of a divide at this panpsychism conference last weekend. I think you know where half of us, myself included, I'm I'm more open to spiritual convictions and exploring that. Mm. And I think if you you know a panpsychist perspective is perhaps more consonant with that. And you know I think these things can be done with rigor and seriousness and careful thought, but that's not necessarily connected with the panpsychist position. Mm. Not, lots of people are total secular atheists that are. Yeah. I'm just trying to build consciousness. Do you think like psychedelics can teach us anything about consciousness? This was uh, there was an, an another another of the essays in 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 the volume was what was focused on this actually thinking about pants. There mm. were essays by philosophers, scientists, and two by theologians actually. Mm. Uh, one arguing that panpsychists should believe in God. And another exploring spirituality and psychedelics, and in, in in the context of panpsychism, both incredibly interesting essays. Um, look, I mean, that's as I say, people panpsychists will be divided on, on this matter. I mean, certainly, certainly, psychedelics can teach us about a, a wonderful way of exploring mm. human consciousness. These states, these highly, you know, highly unusual states of consciousness, at least relative to normal waking consciousness are incredibly important, I think. And it's it's just criminal that for so long it was illegal to research on this yeah. stuff. This stuff, you it's know, changing being used now. It's changing now. Human beings for tens of thousands of years. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very glad there's such a, mm. a, a rigorous and fascinating uh, research program there. I mean, as to whether, you know, linking it to spirituality and, and whether there are... Um, realms of reality that are accessible in these um, distinct states of consciousness. Obviously a more, a a more controversial question. Um, But I, I suppose if, if you are already a panpsychist, you, you it's maybe you can be maybe more open to taking that possibility seriously. So, I mean, suppose you're, you know, you're, you, take some psychedelics and you have this experience that there's a higher form of consciousness mm. at the root of all things. You know, if you're a materialist and you think the fundamental story is physics, then 
you've got to think that was a delusion. Mm. But if, you, if you're a panpsychist and you already think mm. that there's consciousness at the fundamental level of reality, it's less of a leap to take seriously what that mystical experience seemed mm. to be telling you. But this is getting into more controversial territory, as I say. <laughs> Lots of my panpsychist brethren would say, what are you doing? Let's go. That David Charm is always shouting at me. Stop talking about religion. You were trying to get this stuff taken scientifically. Maybe this, I mean, you had this fight between Freud and Jung, actually. Not that I'm delusions of grandeur comparing myself to these figures. But, you know, Freud and Jung were always fighting uh, over whether we should engage with spiritual convictions and so on. Yeah. But um, I, I'm up for a bit of that, but not all panpsychists will be. Okay, one last question. I mean, th this book is really a wonderful read uh, and, and very uh, thought provocative in, in, in many ways. Or thought expanding is a better word. But uh, tell me, what, what's your next book project? Are you writing something after this? Yeah, I'm, I'm currently on research, working on a book with, well, talking about these slightly more exotic spiritual views um, I'm writing, writing a book on the purpose of existence. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> uh, basically, the premise is arguing that God doesn't exist, but there is a purpose to the universe, that it, there is a good reason to take seriously, um, in some sense, teleology or directionality okay. in, in, in the physical universe itself. I mean, there's a book by... Um, Thomas Nagel called Mind and Cosmos yeah, back in 2012. I, yeah, I read it. Entertained this kind of idea. Um, so, I mean, that, that sort of very different arguments and exploring different possibilities. And I, I think it should be a lot more accessible, I hope, than the Nagel's. Nagel's book was quite accessible, but um, so yeah, getting a, a little, a little bit even more controversial. And um, but yeah, I just think there are. I, I can't help. I, I never fit into the dichotomies very well, you know, of, um, um, I, I, I guess I am an atheist about the traditional God because of the, just because of the problem of evil and suffering, yeah. it doesn't seem to be plausible that a, mm. an all loving, all powerful God would create a world where such terrible things happen. But on the other hand, things like the, um, the discovery in recent decades that, um, The laws, as we put it, the laws of physics are fine-tuned for the possibility of life in the sense that for life to be physically possible, mm. certain numbers in physics, such as the uh, the, the, the mass of electrons or the the, the, the expansion mm. rate of the universe, had to fall in a certain incredibly narrow range, and against incredible odds, obviously they did, or, or life because life exists. And I don't know. I, I just think in our standard. Bayesian ways of thinking about evidence. I think this should at least be taken seriously as evidence for some kind of um, goal-directed action at, at, at mm. the, in the very early stages of the universe, which sounds kind of crazy, and that's not how we've got used to thinking of science. But you know, I don't know. I can't help thinking that's what the the, the evidence seems to be suggesting, and so we should follow the evidence where it leads. You know, the the economist Keynes said, you know, he was when a journalist told him off for. Um, Saying he didn't used to think this, and he said, "When the facts change, I change my mind." So um, that's so, a, good, yeah, so I'm, a very I'm good to, attitude to have. <laughs> so I'm conceiving it as a middle way between yeah. God and God and atheism. I think, and I, you know, I think many people feel they fit in that in neither category, and 
But then talk of a middle way between traditional religion and mm. secularism is still thought of as fluffy minded and not thought out. But I, you know, I don't see why these things can't be treated with rigor and seriousness mm. and intelligence and, so yeah, that's 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 what I'm I'm currently working on. That sounds wonderful. So when will you be ready to publish? Oh God, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping, hoping to have a draft by Easter. I've got a very short period of research leave. Hoping to have a draft okay. by Easter. Maybe polish it by the end of the summer. And um, sounds very interesting. Know. Sounds very interesting. Anyway, Philip, it was really great to have you on our podcast. Wonderful to talk to you about your new book, Galileo's Mistag in Swedish. That's what it's called. Thank you for being on our podcast. Well, thank you very much. If people have any follow-up questions, do I'm always arguing on Twitter, Philip underscore Goff on Twitter. And uh, my website, philipgoffphilosophy.com. Lots of videos and talks and stuff there. So yeah, thank you very much. Perfect. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Swedish, hearing what Swedish readers think of it. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.